Music is one of the most powerful forms of artistic expression. Music can change your mood, enhance your feelings, and inspire confidence. Music also has the power to change the tides of protests and even spark revolution. I'm not referring to the wild flute and drummer of those revolutionary war paintings, although those are very impressive. No, today we shift our focus to a more recent event in history, the Baltic State's unique approach to gaining freedom from the Soviet Union. How songs once demonized by the Soviet government led to the early departure of Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. We'll be looking into the long and tumultuous relationship between the Baltic states and the Soviet Union, and how it all came to an end in another geopolitical extravaganza episode of The Remedial Scholar. That's ancient history. I feel I was denied. Critical. Need to know. Information. It belongs in a museum, Stop skipping your remedial class. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Remedial Scholar. I am Levi, and I am happy to see you. Of course, I can't actually see you. I can't see anything. I've been legally blind for 14 years. So, if you know me and have witnessed me seeing things, that was just an elaborate prank. No, obviously not. <laughs> but, I, but I am happy you're here and listening and ready to learn. Nonsense aside, I want to thank everyone who's been rating and sharing the show wherever possible. If not, I don't love you. No. Nonsense. I do love you, but I am disappointed. If you'd like to help the show out, if you've loved one random fact from the show, share it on your social media of choice. All of the links for our social pages are found in the link tree or individualized in the description. You can also find other shows like the Macabre Emporium, Real Creature Feature, and my other show, West of Nowhere, in the description. All excellent shows, and they all deserve your ears, in my most humble of opinions. Lastly, check out the merch where you can, you know, find uh, very interesting designs that I have made myself and uh, that can be found in the description or in the link tree and now on to the show today will be similar to last week where we previewed the countries involved brief history of each of them and full you know full episodes of each country could be entire podcasts by themselves and probably are uh, then we're going to be moving into the geopolitical relationships betwixt each of them and what life was like within the baltic states involved before they grew tired of their soviet possessors or oppressors and yearned for freedom and the acts they chose to do so summarizing the end seeing where the countries rank today so that's kind of the agenda so buckle up and let's get into it Okay, so to start this off, we need to understand the history of the Baltic states. Like pretty much every region on the planet, the history of the Baltic states go, goes back pretty far and has changed hands quite a bit as well. The term Baltic states isn't really that old, all things considered. It derives obviously from the Baltic Sea, on which all three states share a border, but it was also used as a descriptor of the countries who had won their independence from the Russian Empire following the conclusion of World War One. The countries involved in today's episode I mentioned in the opener, but I will repeat them once again as we will be going through you know, them one by one anyway. So Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. Estonia is fun for me because I learned about it from the movie Encino Man, and if you haven't seen it, you simply must. The only reason that country pops in in that movie is because Pauly Shore's aptly named Stony suggests Estonia as a country of origin for a fake international exchange student who is really a caveman frozen in glacial ice only to be resurrected in the early 90s. 
or late 80s. I'm, I can't remember which one it is. One of the two. It's not super important or important at all, but Estonia cannot enter my, um, my mind without me thinking about Encino Man. So do with that information what you will. So first up on our list, we have Lithuania. This first bit is uh, kind of true about all these countries, but they were originally inhabited by tribes of the Baltic region. People who used the Baltic Sea to give them their livelihood. Traveling hunters who were not so much of a distant bound hunting group, but would like survive on local populations. This tribe likely mixed in with the Indo-Europeans around 3000 BCE, presumably the same types of Indo-Europeans that were discussed at the very beginning of the Pirates episode, the first Pirates episode. I think one of the interesting parts of this area, the Baltic region in general, is that it is one of the few places I have discussed on this show that have not, like, been absorbed by the Roman Empire. Like, they dealt with them, but they weren't, like, I don't know, <laughs> in the foothold. And because of this, there's, you know, there is documented history, but there's not as much as there would if it was, like, say, I don't know, in, in like Greece, you know, like, or like Morocco, like those countries that are just right there. <laughs> I like that I use Greece, like as, as if Greece is so far removed from Rome. <laughs> anyway, um, but there was trading between the Baltic region and the Roman empire uh, via a place called the Amber Road. So it's a trade route that specialized in moving amber. Weird. I know. Uh, it's not even known if the people that were trading with the Romans were even from the region, but they did trade with them through there and there's a lot of educated guesses based on you know the names and such that were written down by some of the tradesmen that were you know romans were very meticulous in a lot of places so who knows claudius ptolemy wrote of the people in the region which also by the way by my investigation does not be a, does not appear to be related to cleopatra but how cool would that be claudius ptolemy is uh, really fascinating uh, he's a renowned astronomer mathematician astrologer geographer and music theorist to boot so if anyone's gonna know where the people were living he would and he wrote about these people so either way it's not until the middle ages where we really get the introduction of the place of course we know that the norse people raided deep into europe and the baltic states were no exception in fact a fair amount of them would set up shop near these places as well from the darkness of the early middle ages turned actually pretty profitable eventually people of lithuania did take some of the raiding tactics and employed them on their neighbors and eventually built a nice little foothold in the region came from the ashes of the struggle in the region and the state had been formed essentially to curb these actions because of unification of the tribes in the region of the grand duchy of lithuania began so from the 9th to the 11th centuries coastal balts faced you know viking raids and lithuanian territories paid tribute to the kievan rus kievan I don't know, that word always trips me up. By the mid-12th century, Lithuania began invading Ruthenian territories, fostering social differentiate, differentiation and leading to the formation of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania by 1219. The only Lithuanian Catholic king, Mendagas, was crowned in 1253. After his assassination in 1263, pagan Lithuania faced Christian crusades, notably from the Teutonic Knights, but still expanded rapidly. In 1362 or 1363, Grand Duke Algirdas achieved a decisive victory against the Golden Horde in the Battle of Blue Waters, expanding Lithuanian control to uh, Kiev and parts of present-day Ukraine. By the end of the 14th century, Lithuania was one of Europe's largest countries, including present-day Belarus, Ukraine, and parts of Poland and Russia. In 1385, Grand Duke Yogia accepted Poland's offer, Christianizing Lithuania and establishing a personal union between Poland and Lithuania. Vytautas the Great, who became Grand Duke in 1391, saw Lithuania reach its territorial peak. Battle of Grunwald 
in 1410, a victory over the Teutonic Knights was a major medieval and European battle, which Lithuania was successful in. From the 14th to the 15th century, the Gedi Minids dynasty ruled not only Lithuania, but also other European regions. The 15th century saw attempts to break the Poland-Lithuanian Union due to the threat from the Grand Duchy of Moscow. The Battle of Orsha in 1514 saw Lithuanians defeating a much larger Muscovite force, strengthening the alliance against Moscow. Now, the Livonian War marked the battle uh, marked by the Battle of Orsha ended temporarily with the Truce of Yam Zapolsky in 1582. The truce was extended in 1600 but broke when the Poles invaded Moscow. Muscovy in 1605. In 1569, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was formed through the Union of Lublin, allowing Lithuania to retain its institutions. However, Polonization gradually influenced politics, language, culture, and national identity. Mid-16th to mid-17th centuries saw a flourishing of culture, arts, education influenced by the Renaissance and Protestant Reformation. Election of kings and grand dukes by nobility, coupled with golden liberties like the Liberian Veto, led to anarchy and eventually dissolution of the state. The Commonwealth's Golden Age in the early 17th century saw a powerful uh, parliament dominated by nobles. Neutrality in the Thirty Years' War spared it from devastation and the Commonwealth successfully defended against Swedes, Russians, and the Ottoman Empire. In the time of Troubles, the Commonwealth troops even took Moscow temporarily, which is pretty impressive. In 1655, Vilnius was occupied by loot occupied and looted by Russian army during the Northern Wars, leading to a significant loss of life and cultural heritage. The subsequent, subsequent Great Northern War, 1700 to 1721, along with plague and famine, caused a 40% population decrease. Foreign powers, especially Russia, dominated Commonwealth politics and internal divisions prevented reform. Constitution of May 3rd, 1791, aimed to address the Commonwealth's political issues, introducing elements of political equality and mitigating abuses of serfdom probably a good plan it banned the liberum veto i'm pretty sure i pronounced that wrong earlier <laughs> the liberum veto and established a more democratic constitutional monarchy drafted in relation to the united states contest constitution is considered the world's second oldest codified national government constitution after the united states constitution so that's kind of interesting following these actions the commonwealth was cut up like the baltic birthday cake and the lion's share going to the Russian Empire. Naturally, this did not go over well and we actually have. Can you believe it? A tie into another episode. <laughs> I know, that never happens. By God, it's Joan of Arc from the top rope. No, <laughs> not Joan, but someone who followed her example, Amelia Plater, Plater, should look that up, was a Polish-Lithuanian who involved herself in the attempt at freedom for Lithuania from the Russian Empire. She was only 25 years old when she died of an illness during this attempt, but she, unlike Joan, actively participated in battles like in combat herself. Her revolution was known as the November Uprising, which took place between 1830 and 1831, and another bit of revolution was attempted in 1863, which is called the January Uprising. Shockingly, these two were named after the months in which they began. I know, some real brain teaser stuff going on here. Of course, neither was successful, but I think they demonstrate that the desire of the once sentient state of Lithuania to be free once again, you know, is existing. I think also, especially around that time that this is happening, you have a lot of news from around the world being distributed in ways you've never seen before. If you consider that the context of the people will be seeing the other places gaining their independence, wishing to have their own, essentially in a direct response to what I've just said in 1840, 
Russian Empire banned Lithuanian press and began shifting Lithuanian cultural destinations as well as like schools and kind of just deciding how everything was going to go. Trying to force Russian lifestyle and culture that this was not a success failed because of something I've never ever thought I would ever say but I'm happy I got to or I get to. Lithuanian book smugglers thwarted the attempts of Russian Russianization of Lithuania following the ban on the press and secret homeschooling saved children from Russian education. <laughs> Lithuanian book smugglers that is that's my new band name I'm pretty sure. In the 20th century things were a little bit different um, but kind of the same in World War One. Lithuania was occupied by, Germ by Germany with Russia eating itself Lithuania was able to regain its independence. In 1918, a council had been assembled. An act of independence of Lithuania was adopted, in which, after the end of World War One, resulted in their liberation. Like I said, this would last until 1940. Spoiler alert: uh, During World War Two, they would be annexed by the Nazis, and then, you know, they had they'd been annexed kind of, but they also tried to remain neutral. Not sure if you remember, but the relationship between the Soviet Union and Germany was a little complex during the World War II. <laughs> And this extended to the Baltic states. So because of this, Lithuania found itself being occupied by either Germany or Russia or both during the war. Major Soviet army movements forced uh, the president to flee and the Baltics were back under Russian control. Due to this, tens of thousands of Lithuanians found themselves sent to Stalin's gulags. While, and then, you know, when the Nazis invaded, there were even more that had been deported to concentration camps. And obviously, you know, that's not great. Um, uh, there was also a massive massacre at uh, Panarai, now Panarai, uh, in Poland, I think. When the Germans began to retreat from the regions, the Soviets regained control and then would continue to control it until, you know, our topic occurred. So now we're going to back up, go to Latvia. So Latvia, like I said, lot, a lot similar to Lithuania and the early settlers of the region. Um, you know, they were also part of the amber trade. This kind of whole region would be. And then kind of the same until the new millennium with the Norse Raiders. A little bit different here, though. Uh, the Koronians were actually a group of Latvian based that were actually able to fight off the Scandinavians, which is kind of interesting. In the 12th century, the indigenous pe people of what is now Latvia found themselves increasingly integrated into the broader European socio-political framework after, you know, dealing with, like, batting off the Vikings. During this period, the Pope dispatched missionaries with the aim, uh, with the aim of converting the local population to Christianity. However, reception is not as enthusiastic as the church had anticipated. Weird. I think that's pretty much every time, anytime a group tries to spread <laughs> forcefully the word of their deity, it doesn't go well. And every time they're surprised, they're like, why would you not like our dude? He's cool, man. Uh, the locals showed resistance, you know, uh, when embracing the new faith. In response, German crusaders, including notable figures such as Saint Meinhard of Sigeberg, arrived in late 12th century, their mission being to forcefully convert the Livonian people. As the 13th century dawned, German influence expanded, resulting in an effective rule of significant portions of Latvia and the establishment of the crusader state, recognized as Terra Mariana or Livonia. Cities like Riga, integral hubs in the east-west trade joined Hanseatic League in 1282, solidifying their economic importance in the subsequent periods of Reformation along with Polish and Swedish rule. The Saw Riga ascend to the position of the capital of Swedish Livonia after the Livonian War, which took place between 1558 and 1583. The 17th and early 18th centuries ushered a complex geopolitical landscape in Latvia, marked by power struggles involving the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, Sweden, 
Eastern Russia following the Polish-Swedish War and uh, Northern Livonia fell under Swedish control, period. Recalled positively in Latvia for its role in alleviating serfdom and establishing an educational network. So, kind of some good, some bad in that. Cultural transformations unfolded during this event or era, most notably the widespread up. Adoption of Lutheranism under the governance of Sweden and Germany. The amalgamation of ancient tribes in, into the Latvian people took the took place concurrently with the crystallization of a distinct Latvian language. The Great Northern War 1700-1721 as mentioned before also claimed the lives of a lot of people in Latvia and because of this tumultuous period it uh, brought in some territorial shifts including the secession of or not really secession session of Vidzim to Russia, the retention of Latgale within the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth until 1772, and the annexation of Courland by Russia in 1795. Midst these changes, the 19th century witnessed economic and construction boom in Latvia, the emancipation of serfs in 18, 1817 and 1819 in Courland and Vidzim, respectively, marked a crucial milestone in the region's development. Makes sense. <laughs> 19th century. Uh, further brought about profound social changes characterized by the rise of independent farmers, urbanization, and the emergence of a Latvian bourgeoisie. <gasps> gasp! The young Latvian movement, a key ideological force, laid the groundwork for nationalism. Also gasp! Culminating in the first national awakening. Awakening? <laughs> Awakey wakey! <laughs> However, this period also saw the onset of Russification in Latgale. Extending its influence throughout Latvia by the 1880s, the nationalist sentiments that gained momentum during the 1905 Russian Revolution left an indelible mark on the Baltic provinces, shaping the tra trajectory of Latvia's national identity. After the devastation of World War I, Latvia also emerged as an independent state, um, breaking free from Russian hold after you know the Russian Revolution. Following the proclamation of independence on November 18th, 1918, whoa, we're right around there. The, the People's Council of Latvia in Riga, Karlis Umanis, assumed the position of Prime Minister, leading to the newly formed government. The subsequent War of Independence witnessed a tumultuous period marked by the presence of multiple governments, including the Provisional Government led by Umanis and the Latvian Soviet Government supported by the Red Army, and the Provisional Government headed by Andrius Nidra and backed by the Balstisch, oh man, that is a crazy word, Landischwer, and the German Freikorps unit iron division i am not good at pronunciation on these i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna give you a heads up on that estonian and latvian forces achieved uh, significant victories such as the battle of winden in june of 1919 and repelled a substantial german force the west russian volunteer army in november of the same year by early 1920 latvian and polish troops cleared eastern latvia of red army forces the constituent assembly convened on may 1st 1920 played a pivotal role in shaping latvia's trajectory and adopt adopting the liberal satvrm's constitution in february 1922 economic growth and innovation characterized latvia's post-war period leading to a recovery and development until the Great Depression. <laughs> yeah, weird. Despite economic challenges, Latvia continued to progress, reducing land landlessness from 61.2% in 1897 to 18% in 1936 through radical land reform. So that's pretty impressive. In 1934, Carlos Ulmanis staged a bloodless coup, establishing a nationalist dictatorship that lasted until 1940. Ulmanis initiated government corporations to Latvianize the economy by acquiring private firms. 
Latvia, like the other two, had a little bit of a darker turn, um, thanks to the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, and this is kind of what brought these countries into the Soviet sphere. Latvia, like Lithuania and also Estonia, they tried to remain neutral, didn't work didn't work super well. Now the harsh Soviet rule sparked uprisings and with German attack on the Soviet Union in Operation Barbarossa in 1944, Latvia and the other two also came under German control and the subsequent German occupation also brought Latvians into the Holocaust as well. So now you have like so now you have both going on. You have you have wars actually being fought and then you also have the Nazis deporting people to wherever and then you have the Russians also doing the same thing so it's it's kind of a mess all right so that's Latvia up until World War II now on to Estonia Estonia the northernmost of the three Baltic states has a rich history dating back to late Pleistocene glaciation around 10,000 BC human settlements linked to the Kundra culture can be traced to the 9th millennium BC and the Neolithic period brought forth the Narva and the Comb ceramic cultures with the latter potentially connected to the arrival of Balto-Finnic peoples and the Bronze Age saw fortified settlements and the impact of meteorite and Saurima islands. The name Estonia first appeared as Aisti in the first century CE, possibly referring to Baltic tribes over time. Scandinavian sagas and Ptolemy's geography adopted this term, while Cassiodorus identified the Aisti as Estonians, known for their proficiency in wind magic, so that's pretty cool. The first century CE witnessed the formation of political and administrative structures, including parishes, counties, and Varbola strongholds. Uh, becoming a notable feature and this kind of can continued on for the next few hundred years also you know like mentioned they <laughs> estonia also in the amber road trade organization not really an organization but they were just involved in that kind of thing and then the 11th century you know brought clashes between the baltic people and the scandinavian norse people raiding and then this also paved away for the baltic crusades estonia resisted christianization until the northern crusades leading to the establishment of the stronghold in of Riga. The 14th century saw St. George's Night Uprising and the sale of Danish dominions in Estonia to the Livonian Order. Livonian Order being a order of crusaders. 15th century witnessed the division of Estonia between the Livonian branch of the Teutonic Order of uh, Teutonic Order and the bishoprics of Doprot, Dorpat and Osawite. Despite uprisings, the Muscovian invasion, Baltic Germans maintained control. 1520 saw an advent of the Protestant Reformation, like I mentioned with the other ones, Lutheranism taking root because of that German influence. And then the Livonian War also affecting Estonia. In the 19th century, educated German immigrants and local Baltic Germans introduced Enlightenment ideals to the Estonians, uh, fostering Estophile Enlightenment. Emancipation of peasantry beginning in 1816 triggered debates of, about Estonia's future. Um, Russification policies in 1889 and the Russian Revolution uh, spurred Estonia demands for freedom and autonomy. The Russian February February Revolution, you know, the one where they killed everybody, granted national autonomy to all of the Baltic regions now, so Estonia being included again. And then there was a war in Estonia, the war, uh, the Estonian War of Independence, 18, uh, 1918 to 1920, resulting in the Treaty of Tartu. 
1920, which secured international recognition and League of Nations membership for the Republic of Estonia. Despite threats from fascist movements, Estonia transitioned from democracy to dictatorship in 1934. The historical journey reflects the complexities of Estonia's evolution, encompassing you know strategic alliances, cultural transformations, and persistent struggle for autonomy and identity. Estonia's inaugural phase of independence, spanning from 18, 1918 to 1940, encapsulated a transformative 22 years marked by sweeping economic, social, political reforms. You know, it's a political movement that arose in 1919, implementation of land reform, cornerstone initiative that redistributed extensive estate holdings among both the agrarian populace and the volunteers who had played a, a pivotal role in the Estonian War of Independence. During this period, Estonia strategically engaged with the primary markets in Scandinavia, United Kingdom, Western Europe, fostering economic ties that underpinned burgeoning sovereignty, which is good. The form formulation of Estonia's inaugural constitution in 1920 heralded the establishment of a parliamentary system of governance fe featuring the Rikikogu, a legislative body compromising of 100 members elected to three-year terms. The interwar years, spanning from 1920 to 1934, witnessed the ebb and flow of with Estonia experiencing a uh, experiencing the leadership of 21 distinct governments, which is crazy. 1930s unfolded against the backdrop of political dyna dynamism marked by the ascent of anti-communist VAPS movement. The movement spearheaded a constitutional reform referendum in 1933, reflecting the evolving political landscape. However, in a dramatic turn, like I mentioned a little bit ago, in 1934 they had a state of Konstantin Pats orchestrated a coup d'etat, steering Estonia towards the phase of an authoritarian rule until the installation of a new constitution. This era, known as the Era of Silence, saw the prohibition of political parties and a dormant parliament until 1938. So four years, that's pretty wild. FAP's movement, a key player in political discourse, faced an official ban and dissolution in 1935. Notwithstanding the political turbulence, the interwar epoch bore witness to remarkable cultural progress. Estonian language schools were established, fostering linguistic and educational advancements while artistic endeavors flourished, contributing to a vibrant cultural milieu. A standout cultural milestone was the pioneering was the pioneering guarantee of cultural autonomy to minority groups in an exceptional measure within the context of Western Europe during that era. Estonia, like their Baltic friends, tried to maintain neutrality, like I mentioned before. However, the unfolding geopolitical landscape disrupted this stance with the signing of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact pact that I mentioned a little bit earlier. Subsequently, in 1939, Soviet warships made their presence felt off Estonian ports and bombers patrolled Tallinn. Faced with Soviet ultimatum, Estonia reluctantly consented to the establishment of military bases and the standing of troops on its soil. This consequential agreement inked on September 28, 1939, marked the inception of Estonia's intricate trajectory amidst the crazy events of World War II. Alright, so those are the three Baltic states, but who are the ones that are oppressing them? Russians have a long and complicated history that can't quite fill this, <laughs> I, I can fill this episode, but it would, it would be full pretty quickly. So, gonna do a quick summary here. Inside Russia's historical narrative, 
commenced with the Eastern Slavs. The beginning marker said in 862 uh, denotes the establishment of the Rus estate ruled by Varangians or Varangians. A pivotal mo moment unfolds in, 1880, in 882 when Pr Prince Oleg of Novgorod unifies the desperate Sla uh, Eastern Slav lands, orchestrating a shift in governance center to Kiev by the late 10th century. Cultural amalgamation of the Byzantine and Slavic influences in 1988 moves on with the adoption of Christianity from the Byzantine area uh, empire. Nevertheless, the glory of the Kievan Rus succumbs to the ravages of the Mongol invasions of 1237 to 1240, leading to its eventual disintegration. Those Mongols, they, <laughs> they just kind of wrecked everybody up. Anyway, the political and cultural ascension of the Mos of Moscow gains momentum in the aftermath of the 13th century, culminating in the consolidation of Russian lands under the Grand Duchy of Moscow by the close of the 15th century. Ivan the Terrible, heard of him, assumes the mantle, transforming the Grand Duchy into the Sardom of Russia in 1547. However, the demise of his son, Fyodor, Fyodor I, in 1598, castle Russia into turbulent times of trouble. The chaotic period resolved only in 1613 with the coronation of Michael Romanov, marking the inception of the Romanov dynasty. Ivan the Terrible and the death of his son. That's a really good painting. I'm, I can't remember if that's the exact title, but that's like the eyes in that painting are just like so stricken with grief. It's very fascinating. It's a very good painting. Although <laughs> it depicts that he like killed him but I'm pretty sure that's not how it went down. I didn't research it before this, but because it just kind of popped in my head. Anyway, venturing into the 17th century, Russia extends its reach into Siberia and contends with domestic upheavals epitomized by the Cossack leader Stenka Razin's revolt. The transformative years of 1971 witnesses Tsar Peter the Great renaming the state of the Rus as the Russian Empire, heralding an era of modernization and westernization. Catherine the Great perpetuates these po policies upon assuming power in 16 or 1762 and her grandson Alexander I repels Napoleon's invasion, firmly establishing Russia as a formidable global power. You'll remember that's the one where they did the scorched earth like retreat tactic as winter came in. So Napoleon basically because of his like obsession followed this retreating army further into the unknown. 19th century ushered a tide of peasant revolts culminating in Alexander II's uh, abolition of serfdom in 1861. Gotta please the people. Despite subsequent efforts at economic and political reforms in the ensuing decade, autocratic resistance remained formidable. formidable. Seismic events of the Russian Revolution in 1917, fueled by economic breakdown, mismanagement of World War One, societal discontent with the autocracy, initially brought forth a coalition of liberals and moderate, moderate socialists. Their shortcomings, however, paved the way for the October Revolution in 1922 and the treaty on the creation of the USSR formally heralded the birth of the Soviet Union and all its subsequent ownership properties, like Belarus, Ukraine, all of those guys. From 1929 to 1939, the Soviet Union underwent a transformative period under Joseph Stalin's adept consolidation of power. Internal struggles, that's one way to put it. <laughs> Notably with factions led by Leon Trotsky allowed Stalin to establish near total dominance by 1928. This era witnessed the implementation of the first five-year plan in 1929, comprehensive initial dismantling 
of the new economic policy and ushering in a rapid industrialization, agricultural collectivization, and restricted consumer goods production. The shift marked a monumental transition from an agrarian to industrial powerhouse. This government, as part of the plan, took control of the agriculture through the state and collective farms, forcibly displacing around 1 million peasants, no big deal, known as the Kulaks by 1930. This triggered widespread oppression, resulting in revolts, executions, and the tragic famine of 1932 and 1933, especially devastating Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and southwestern Russia. Despite the human toll, deteriorating rural conditions fueled a significant wave of urbanization, fortifying the ongoing industrialization process. The Stalinist era unfolded amidst uh, repressive measures, exemplified by harrowing great purges of 1937 and 1938. Under Stalin's commissar, Nikolai Yesov, NKVD, executed a campaign targeting Soviet citizens, leading to widespread arrests, deportations, executions, so on. This purging extended to the old Bolsheviks, Red Army officers, and industrial figures. The Gulag system's labor camps played a pivotal role, with an estimated 18 million passing through. Internationally, the Soviet Union grappled with concerns over Hitler's rise in Germany while supporting Spanish re Republicans and resisting Imperial Japan. The annexation of Austria, the Munich Agreement signaled uh, German, German expansion. And then in 1939, we have the Molotov-Rubin Trump pact with Nazi Germany making a shift in Soviet-German relations. Now the onset of World War II, Red Army invaded eastern Poland in 1939, adjusting borders and gaining territories uh, from conflicts with Finland. The challenge came in 1941 as Germany invaded the Soviet Union, as we know. And then decisive victories over Stalingrad and Kursk reversed the war's course. By 1945, Soviet forces had penetrated eastern Germany, culminating in the capture of Berlin and the triumphant end to World War II. And of course, there's so much more than that but this story ain't about them it's about the people that sought freedom from their rule so what was it that these countries were trying to escape was life under the soviet control that bad well apparently typically revolutions don't happen when people are not miserable at all so between 1940 and 1987-ish soviet union undertook an extensive sovietization process in the baltic countries aiming to erode their national identities through industrialization and systematic attacks on cultural, religious, and expressive freedoms. The Baltic Partisans referred to this as, uh, referred to as the Estonian Forest Brothers fiercely resisted the Soviet dominance with armed resistance, garnering crucial support from local population. In response, the Soviets conducted widespread deportations between 1944 and 1952, numbering 124,000 around about in Estonia, 136,000 in Latvia, and a staggering 245,000 in Lithuania. These deportees, labeled as enemies of the people, endured harsh conditions in the hospitable regions of the Soviet Union and resulting in tragic loss. I'm assuming they all went to the gulags, like forced work camp, you know, the hardcore stuff, like straight to Siberia. Permission for the deportees to return home was granted only after Nikita Khrushchev's secret speech in 1956. Post-World War II, the geopolitical political landscape of the Baltic region underwent significant changes as the Soviets defined new borders with Lithuania gaining territories while Estonia and Latvia ceded land to the Soviet Federation. The Soviet strategy involved the substantial investments in energy and industry and agriculture to assimilate the Baltic economies into the broader Soviet framework. This economic shift detrimentally impacted agriculture and housing, especially in rural areas, suffering from insufficient investment and the repercussions of collectivization. Urban landscapes ravaged during the war took a decade to rebuild. 
but new constructions often fell short in quality and the ethnic Russian immigrants received preferential treatment in housing, which is, you know, that's always what you want. There's a, a good way to do it, right? Demographically, Estonia and Latvia experienced substantial transformations due to the influx of industrial workers from the Soviet Union, leading to a decline in ethnic majorities of these populations. Estonia's percentage dropped from 88 to 60 percent just before 1970. Latvia dropped from 75 to 56 in 1970 and then further to, uh, to 52 percent in 1989. In contrast, Lithuania's decline was a little more moderate, around 4 percent attributed to factors like acquiring the Vilnius area and, a f and fewer citizens fleeing westward. The enduring consequences of Sovietization are evident in the Baltic regions, reflected by in demographic shifts, like I, I just mentioned, economic restructuring, and the suppression of cultural and national identity. The scars of this period persist in the collective memory of the Baltic people, a testament to their resilience in, com in confronting ideological and uh, systemic challenges. The Soviet Union harbored concerns regarding loyalty of the Baltic region and recognized its strategic military significance as well, leading to the establishment of various min military installations due to its proximity to non-Eastern Bloc states. This strategic positioning included surveillance centers and submarine base, amplifying the Soviet Union's vigilance in the area. As the late 1960s unfolded, democratic movements found resonance among Baltic intellectuals, prompting a shift in political dynamics. The signing of the Helsinki Accords marked a turning point, fostering the creation of a monitoring, monitoring group in Lithuania during that sub subsequent year. This group, active throughout 1970s and 1980s, produced dissident publications that challenged the prevailing Soviet narrative. Baltic landscape witnessed the convergence of nationalism and religion, giving rise to small-scale demonstrators, demonstrations and clan uh, clandestine underground activities. In a significant show of international support, the European Parliament passed a resolution in 1982 backing the Baltic cause, further fueling aspirations for self-determinization. Now, despite maintaining ethnic diversity, Soviet Union pursued efforts to impose uniformity, or uniformity, that's probably the right word, exemplified by a renewed wave of Russification or Soviet, Soviet, Sovietization in the late 1970s. This initiative targeted the education system, seeking to mold a Soviet national identity. While Baltic children continued their education in native languages, the, compulsor, the compulsory inclusion of the Russian language and restrictions on freedom of expression in literature and visual arts underscored the Soviet Union's push for cultural assimilation. Amid these constraints, Estonian song festivals persevered as a crucial semi-covert avenue of national self-expression. Intellectual life and scientific research persisted, albeit with the, you know, within the confines of Soviet standards. However, as the calendar progressed beyond 1975, the cascade of challenges emerged, including shortages of consumer goods, social issues, uncontrolled immigration, environmental degradation. By the 1980s, the Baltic republics found themselves at the epicenter of heightened social and political tensions, both within their borders and in the strained relationship with Moscow. The historic fabric of the Baltic region became woven in the intricate threads of resistance, identity, and aspiration aspirations for autonomy, creating a narrative that would leave an indelible mark on the pages of history. Each country kind of had its own issues breaking and breaking points, but they all kind of had a common ground, you know, common goal, freedom. The Soviet power had been, you know, publicly weakening thanks to mishaps like, you know, Chernobyl or the poorly handling of Afghanistan. And then the, there's like phosphorite minings. Chernobyl, I'll bring up 
because specifically, I don't know if you've ever watched that series, that HBO series, Chernobyl, but in that, there's a very, very distinct moment where they're kind of talking about how this is going to look for the world seeing Russia struggling to maintain this, like contain it, and they don't want people to know how bad it is. And I think it's Gorbachev who is, um, who says this, but essentially he's like, you know, we can't let people know that we can't handle this because our power comes from the perception of our power. Like people think we're powerful because that's how they perceive it but they're not gonna think that if they see this kind of thing and like that kind of thing like how bad Chernobyl was for these people moving forward like you know that a bunch of these like subsequent territories that were under the Soviet Union umbrella were just like we gotta get out of here so you know the three Baltic countries were becoming restless and so our topic has entered the fray starting with Estonia here it should be noted that all of these you know, for all of these that with Soviet control, open opposition in the state was pretty seriously rare. As I mentioned, there's kind of a little bit at some festivals and like underground, like, you know, intellectuals spreading the word, doing things like that. Because that's how you had to do it. It was one thing to be disgruntled, but an entirely different thing to voice the disdain and get a, get a one-way ticket to Siberia for you and your whole family. In 1987, the proposed phosphorite extraction in Estonia triggered a significant environmental movement known as the Phosphorite War. The discontent among the public escalated, culminating in a crucial Earth Park meeting held in August 1987. During this gathering, there was an intense demand for the disclosure of the secret protocol of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, unveiling the uh, growing resistance against the Soviet policies in Estonia. Basically like, hey, tell us what that actually said, like what your plans are. The cultural landscape played a pivotal role in shaping the course of dissent in 1988. The singing revolution emerged as a powerful expression of resistance. Initiated by the premiere of Alo Matinson's Five Patriotic Songs series, the musical movement continued to gain momentum with spontaneous patriotic singing becoming a recurring theme at events like the Old Town Festival in Tallinn and the Rock Summer Festival. Play Freebird! <laughs> Um, the apex of peaceful resistance occurred in 1989 with the Baltic Way, a remarkable event where 2 million people formed a human chain stretching from Tallinn to Vilnius. This symbolic gesture of solidarity transcended national borders, showcasing a collective determination for change. And the pictures of this are incredible. Like, I'm literally, I was blown away by seeing, like, I never knew anything about this. So, Baltic Way unfolded, you know, it, featuring this human chain that linked all three Baltic capitals, Vilnius, Riga, and Tallinn, and it was like this huge unity movement. The distance covered on this pseudo Hands Across America thing, 430 miles, which isn't as much as Hands Across America did, but like, that's still pretty cool. Like that's, <laughs> have you driven 430 miles? Imagine driving 430 miles straight on like some modern fuel efficient vehicles. That's one whole gas tank, all right? And just imagine a line of Baltic people <laughs> hand in hand as you drive that entire time like thanksgiving's coming up a lot of people are going to be driving imagine while you're driving wherever you're going that there's just a line of people held, holding hands for almost 500 miles like <laughs> that's crazy so it connected all three of the baltic regions and demonstrators peacefully interlocked hands for 15 minutes at 1900 local time which made a poignant statement estimated one to two million participants showcased solidarity paid tribute to victims of soviet repression including forest brothers deportees to siberia and political prisoners local gatherings and 
protests were integral with 5,000 people congregating in Vilnius Cathedral Square where candles were lit and a national song was you know, everybody broke out in the national song. In Moscow, attempts to stage a sympathy demonstration were met with the deployment of a special riot police, resulting in detentions, not surprise. The Moldavian Soviet Socialist Republic, impacted by the secret protocol, witnessed approximate 1,300 demonstrators and different sympathizers from like places like Germany staged demonstration in front of the Soviet embassy in Bonn, West Germany. Estimated attendance ranging from 1 to 2 million encompassed around 700,000 Estonians, a hunt or 1 million Lithuanians, as reported by different news sources. Latvian Popular Front estimated around 400,000 attendees. Official Soviet figures provided by the TASS cited 300,000 participants in Estonia and nearly 500,000 in Lithuania. One of the more powerful images of this was in Lithuania where, where nearby demonstrators were, you know, while they were holding hands nearby, there was three coffins with the flags of the three Baltic countries draped over each one of them respectively and then two flags crossed stood above them the flag of the soviet union and then the nazi flag which is a pretty powerful visual following the event the central committee of the communist party issued a stern warning regarding nationalist and extremist groups labeling labeling the baltic way as nationalist hysteria the pronouncement hinted at potential catastrophic consequences and called on a pro-soviet masses to defend soviet ideals despite the initial so uh, severity the tone in moscow softened shortly after the broadcast and the soviet authorities refrained from actually implementing any of their threats internationally president hw bush and chancellor helmut kohl advocated for peaceful reforms and criti criticized the molotov ribbentrop pact Ac baltic activists issued a joint declaration of the United Nations Secretary General expressing concerns about aggression and seeking international intervention. The Central Committee of the Communist Party convened but fell short of addressing core issues, offering, you know, vague promises and of increased autonomy without actually tackling the nationality question in the Baltic states. And as the desire for independence intensified, central government in Moscow and the Soviet army sought to impede Estonia's progress in 1991. Undeterred, Estonian legislation and Congress of Estonia boldly proclaimed the restoration of the independent state. A strategic move, unarmed volunteers shielded key locations, basically matching up against like the military. They created barricades and on late evening august 20th 1991 estonia officially declared independence after you know, intricate political negotiations soviet soviet attempts to thwart this declaration included an unsuccessful storming of the Tallinn tv towers by troops the following morning concurrently the communist hardliners coup faltered amidst a pro-democracy demonstrations in moscow led by boris yeltsin and one of the first countries to recognize estonia uh as their own country was Iceland, which is kind of cool. And that happened on August 22nd, 1991. So, you know, fairly quick. I mean, not super quick, obviously, <laughs> considered the whole thing, but Latvia had a slightly different course of action, but it's still included due to the Baltics all leaving around the same time. During the late 1980s, Latvia underwent a profound transformation known as the Third Latvian National Awakening, driven by the policies of Glasnost and Perestroika introduced by Mikhail Gorbachev in the Soviet Union. This transformative period reached its zenith in the mid-1988 in mid as the Soviet Union, under the influence of these policies, began to loosen its grip on restrictions, sparking a notable upsurge in national consciousness and a spirited resistance movement within Latvia. The seeds of discontent were sown in 1986 when Moscow unveiled plans for 
for a hydroelectric plant on the Daugava River and the construction of a metro in Riga. Beyond raising environmental concerns, these projects po posed a direct threat to Latvia's cherished landscape, cultural heritage, and historical identity. In response to this imminent threat, journalists and the press actively encouraged public protests, leading to the formation of the Environmental Protection Club in February of 1987. This grassroots movement swiftly evolved beyond its environmental focus, emerging as one of the most influential mass movements in the region and expanding its advocacy to encompass the broader cause of Latvia's independence uh, restoration. A pivotal moment in the National Awakening unfolded on June 14, 1987 during the commemoration of the 1941 deportation. The human rights group Helsinki 86 orchestrated a symbolic act by placing flowers at the Freedom Monument, a potent symbol of Latvia's independence. While often cited as a starting point of the National Awakening, Awakening, the 1985 Latvian Song and Dance Festival also played a crucial role in expressing the collective yearning for free Latvian nation. In June 1988, Writers' Union convened a congress that delved into critical issues such as the democratization of society, economic sovereignty, secession of immigration from the USSR, industrial transformation, and and the protection of Latvian language rights. Notably, the acknowledgement of the secret protocol of the molotov ribbentrop Pact during this event served as the catalyst intensifying public opinion and injecting momentum into the broader process of national revival. The summer of 1988 witnessed the formation of two pivotal organizations, the Latvian People's Front, which I mentioned before, and the Latvian National Independence Movement. Aligned in their common goal of restoring democracy and independence, these groups alongside the Citizens Congress played instrumental roles in shaping resistance movement. Significant demonstration on October 7, 1988 drew masses fervently calling for Latvia's independence and the establishment of a regular judicial order. First Congress of Latvian People's Front held on October 8th and 9th became a historic event attracting staggering 200,000 members and solidifying its position as the primary representative for the push for independence. And then of course, August 23rd, 1989, the Baltic Way unfolded, the human chain, like I said, spanned the region. This gesture symbolized the unity of the Baltic people, not just of each country but all three countries. New elections in March of 1990 sought supporters of independence securing victory in the Sup Supreme Soviet, further bolstering the mom momentum towards self-determination. In January 1991, pro-communist forces attempted to reinstate Soviet power, resulting in the days of barricades as Latvian demonstration demonstrators valiantly resisted Soviet troops. And then Again, there's a failed coup in Moscow on 19 August 19th, 1991, which kind of just pushed all of these countries out further. Like it was like, okay, well, that's the last, like the last hurrah. So on August 21st, 1991, Supreme Soviet of the Latvian Republic officially declared the end of the transitional period to full independence. So Latvia was declared a full independent nation with its judicial judicial foundation tracking back to tracing back to the preoccupation statehood of June 17, 1940. This momentous declaration marked the culmination of years of steadfast resistance and stood as triumphant affirmation of Latvia's sovereignty in the face of adverse. Lithuania took a more musical route in comparison to Latvia, but not as as intense as Estonia's. In the latter part of the 1980s, Lithuania underwent a profound and transformative period, setting the stage for its unwavering quest for independence from the Soviet Union. One of the remarkable 
facets of this movement was the pivotal role played by singers who skillfully wove nationalist poetry into their lyric, nurturing a collective sense of national identity among the people. The impactful 1987 rock march served as a catalyst, raising public consciousness about pressuring, uh, pressing issues and sparking the establishment of various organizations. Culmination of these efforts manifested in the emergence of the uh, Sayudis movement of 1988 initially aligned with the extreme uh <laughs> initially aligned with the existing regime the Sayudis underwent a metamorphosis evolving into a formidable opposing force the shifts the shift triggering resignations within the communist party of lithuania and paved a way for ascent to a more moderate leadership a concerted effort to reclaim lithuania's distinctive identity unfolded marked by a significant milestone such as the return of vilnius cathedral to the Catholic community and the legalization of the national anthem and the tricolor in 1988. However, the recognition of Lithuania as a sole legal language introduced a layer of tension within the linguistic communities. The year spanning 1988 to 1989 witnessed deliberate reconstruction of national symbols accompanied by deliberate distancing from Soviet affirmation affiliations, Soviet affiliations. The defeat of the CPL resulted in lifting of media restrictions which enabled more open expression of dissent and paving the way for the election of the Congress of People's Deputies of the Soviet Union. On March 11, 1990, a historic moment Lithuania, Lithuania boldly declared independence, a courageous move echoed by Estonia and Latvia, although internationally recognition international although international recognition initially hesitated, the failed coup in 1991 proved to be a turning point, solidifying global acknowledgement of Lithuania's so sovereignty and the other two as well. The journey towards independence faced the, the resistance from Soviet military, as exemplified by the tragic events of Bloody Sunday. Why is it always a bloody Sunday? Like that's, I don't know why. It's like literally always a bloody Sunday in every, <laughs> it seems like in every resistance. Anyway, in 1991, in January 1991, nonviolent protesters demonstrating incredible discipline and courage confronted Soviet assault troops in the Vilnius television tower resulting in 14 deaths and hundreds of injuries. The indomitable spirit showcased a uh, resolute defense of national independence in the face of tanks and bullets. The subsequent failure of a coup in August of 1991 served as, like I said, the marker for international governments to go ahead and just okay that these countries were gonna be their own now. And as these international governments began to recognize these independences, it was kind of a watershed moment in these countries' triumphant affirmations of sovereignty. The recognition symbol re the recognition symbolized the resilience of the Baltic states and their unwavering commitment to become a proud and independent group of nations on the global sta stage. So, are these countries better off after their departure from the Soviet Union? Well, according to you know a few indexes online, it would appear so. While not major economic powers, they average above the current Russian rankings and almost all the quality of life and human development rankings that I found. Estonia specifically being very high, ranked 11th on one quality of life list I found and ranking above the United States even, which is, you know, kind of neat. The human development is probably the most interesting as it and probably most useful metric in my opinion. Uh, that's 
produced by the United Nations, so I'm sure there are probably people out there who say it's probably biased of some sort, but either way, out of 191 countries on this list, Estonia ranks 10 behind the United States at uh, 31, the United States being 21, if, um, if that made it confusing, I'm sorry. Lithuania at 35 and Latvia at 39, so kind of all in that same wheelhouse. Russia, for reference, is at 52, which isn't also like super terrible, but it's not as good as these ones. The reason I like the Human Development Index is that it combines a few things such as life expectancy, standards of living, education, the quality of life is fine, but I think those numbers can often skew depending on how wealthy parts of the population are, if they overshadow the non-wealthy parts. So anyway, that's that's the story. They've been they've been on their own ever since 1991. The singing revolutions. That's that's peaceful protest at its I don't know most potent I would say. Gathering at different you know folk festivals or different sporting events. Things like these songs would just break out, and that was that was how they kind of pushed forward. It was like you hear all these people singing. You know you're not alone in your your thoughts. So that's pretty cool. The achievement of independence without bloodshed stands as a remarkable milestone in the broader narrative of Soviet Union's collapse. It symbolizes the triumph of peaceful resistance underlying resolute spirit of a nation or nations I guess determined to reclaim their sovereignty. The events of this period not only reshaped the Baltic states but uh, states destiny but also kind of contributed to a larger unraveling of the Soviet Union as a whole. Now I will say I listened to a few of these songs and they they kind of slap. Um, there's one, Isama Ilu Hoyildis. I'm really not good at any of these, <laughs> any of these words, but, uh, it translates to keeping the beauty of the fatherland. It has a very, like, 80s synth rock vibe that I like. Kind of reminds me of the Australian band Midnight Oil, if you've ever heard them. And then there's also a song called The Baltics Are Waking Up, which is, like, very stadium rocky, which I'm assuming would be played at, like, sporting events. I didn't listen to all of these, but there's there's lists out there that you can find, you can check out and listen to. I've listened to those two on YouTube, and there's, there's a whole documentary, and there's a movie. But that's The Singing Revolution. I uh, enjoyed this one. I loved learning about these different intricate relationships between these places and how they come to, like, <laughs> a pinnacle several times it wasn't just one it was like time and time again they're like coming to a head ultimately the baltics won their emancipation and it seems like they were it seems like it's looking good for them you know as long as russia doesn't try to take them again it seems like it was like every 20 years or so somebody would be taking them over and then they were you know under new control to so some fun facts of the day we have you know the lithuanian joan of arc so that's pretty fascinating i mean just the fact that another like very young woman part of a revolution you know enough to be where they're like she's part of this like i'm sure there were plenty of young women involved in many revolutions but it's very rare for them to be like that's the lady man so that's pretty cool even if she didn't see it all the way through due to the illness that killed her and then the baltic way that the handlocked movement that swept across this region you know that's like all of the pictures of that are very cool to see side note but what happened to the movements like that like the hands across america live aid farm aid like we are the world you know what i'm talking about we're stars the the ronnie james deal led one um they just, like they all had a very similar vibe and i don't know if that's because they took place before i was born or what but like i just feel like we don't do that are things just that good i don't know it's interesting to think about uh, another thing i found interesting was that there's uh, such a lack of stability in the region after the Middle Ages. It was just very tumultuous all over the place. Russia taking over for a few times and then losing it and then losing themselves. <laughs> so 
uh yeah anyway i hope that was as interesting for you as it was for me thank you for suggesting this episode russell please if you were like man i wish you would cover an idea i had let me know email me at remedialscholar at gmail.com you can click the submission form on the link tree that's how we got last week's episode if you remember literally just go to the link tree link tree slash remedial scholar and in i can't remember if it's the third or fourth bar it's topic suggestion click that and then put your email address in and then type this topic you want and then send away that's it pretty easy um next week i want to cover a bit that i had removed from the pirates episode i want to take a look back at ferdinand magellan why that seems super random i know (laughs) but in a weird strange bit of events i found my order of magellan certificate from when i completed my circumnavigation of the globe when i was in the navy while i was rearranging this space and also the 20th november marks when he reached the pacific and that is kind of fun so we're gonna coincide all that together and justify me doing so also i feel like i just left a lot on the table with that like i deleted a lot from that episode which is wild because that episode is very long so either way that's gonna be next week so get ready to man the sails one more time as we uh journey around the globe partially anyway with magellan (laughs) and that's it for this week thank you again for all the reviews the support please share this with anyone who you think would love it and one person who doesn't just spread the word and have a great week and we will see you next time bye